Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast is presented by Fanatics. You know, Nick, this holiday season, um, my wife, because she's ridiculous sometimes and, and just buys me presents and gives it to me before Christmas, she bought me a brand new Rutgers polo. Nice. Uh, yeah, no, it was really thoughtful of her, man. Uh, you should get some Rutgers gear. I, I want it, man. Obviously, I want to represent the, you know, the Scarlet Knights, but I just, I, I'm trying to figure out a good, a good place to go, man. Oh, well, let me give you a good place to go because you can go to fanatics.com. The Fanatics is the world's largest collection of official fan gear from all the leagues, teams, and players you love. And if you enjoy our show, you're looking to buy a new jersey, sweatshirt, or hat, or the polo that my wife bought me, you can support us by going to podgo.co backslash fanatics, and you get 25% off your next order. Now, that's podgo.co backslash fanatics. Fanatics, officially licensed everything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Severi. And we've got a very special episode for you guys and gals tonight. Um, We'll be talking about the art of filmmaking. And joining us tonight will be Emmy Award-winning director of ESPN and Netflix's The Last Dance, which was the big hit of the 2020 season. He's also directed Andre the Giant, which is available now on HBO Max, a documentary about the famous wrestler. Um, He's also done ESPN 30 for 30, the Fab Five, the story of five Michigan freshmen and and the college basketball team that really revolutionized the sport. And he also did ESPN's 30 for 30 on the 1985 Chicago Bears. So Jason Ayer will be joining us 
um, I worked with him uh, in the past at HBO. Uh, he worked there on the 24-7 series, De La Hoya Mayweather, and all of those great series that came out of that uh, franchise. So he'll be joining us tonight to, to really kind of dive into what directing and producing looks like. Yeah, it's, it's an exciting. I mean, we've been, the guests keep coming for this show, and anyone who's been following is um, hopefully just appreciative of the, uh, of just the experience that people bring, similar to what we saw with Reggie Love and uh, Naveed Jamali a few weeks ago. Um, so tonight with Jason, talking about just another industry, in this case, filmmaking, because we've talked about the media before, but um, in terms of visual media, but tonight we get into what, does it what goes into the making of, of film, in this case, particularly documentaries. And you and I come at this from different places because, you know, with you and Jason, that relationship through HBO, that opportunity to talk about the art of filmmaking. For me, I come at this as a consumer, you know, someone who has watched the Andre the Giant documentary, who's watched The Last Dance, and just really interested in the storytelling and Jason's ability to to bring to light stories that um, really haven't just really haven't been put forward before. I, you know, I think we think about, you know, really how Michael Jordan appears in The Last Dance and just the openness that he had. And I think that's one area. Then you think about like the legend of Andre and how that got played out in that documentary. So a lot of interesting areas. We're, we're lucky for any time that we get for him from him. From him yeah, tonight. yeah, no, he, um, having known him for years, um, you know, super talented. And there's a, the talent pool that came out of HBO documentaries, um, Ezra Edelman, who did OJ Made in America documentary. You have uh, Gabe Spitzer, who, who did uh, ESPN 30 for 30 on John Daly. So there's a lot of talent that came out of there. So just excited um, to, to reconnect with him. But also, like you said, you know, the, the fan in me watching some of these docu-series and then recent comments by some people when the documentaries came out, you know, Chris Weber criticized a little bit of the Fab Five documentary. Scotty Pippins recently criticized The Last Dance, Horace Grant. So how he handles criticism, because you're not going to be able to please everybody in this industry. And, and um, I'm sure he's got uh, some stories to tell us, and uh, we're super excited for him to be joining us tonight. All right, joining us now, Emmy Award-winning director and producer uh, of The Last Dance on ESPN and Netflix, the story that chronicled the 97-98 Chicago Bulls. But he's also done a bunch of other sports documentaries that you may have heard of, just like ESPN's 30 for 30, The Fab Five, the 1985 Chicago Bears, and Nick's personal favorite, Andre the Giant, which is streaming now on HBO Max. Jason, Mike Leon, Nick Savary here. Thanks for jumping on and uh, giving us a couple minutes. You got it, man. We're a topical show, and, and our topic for tonight is really filmmaking 101. Uh, so I wanted to get a little bit more about your personal story, how, you know, your upbringing, your, your childhood, and, and what got you into, you know, directing and producing? Well, I'm the youngest of, of three boys. I grew up outside of Boston, um, and my, my middle brother is three years older than me, and my oldest brother is six years older than me, and pretty much all we did was play sports, 85% of the time and then 15% of the time we were chasing each other around with our camcorder, our home movie camera that we had at home that we got, I think when I was like eight years old, um, we got our first camera in the house, which was the VCR that used to click in above the TV. And if you wanted to tape something, then you had to put a blank tape in that and then detach it and put it over your shoulder and the camera connected to that. So I have a couple of herniated discs and a bad shoulder. <laughs> that I think probably stem back to my, my third grade year when I first started, um, manning the camera for them. So that was just kind of, it was all about sports and movies and music when I was a kid in my house and, and everything kind of rotated around those three things. 
uh, depending on the season, we were playing whatever sport was in season then. And then I always listened to whatever my brothers listened to. And, and we were always either going to the movies and, and then coming home and acting them out or, or making our own. What put you in the position of, of telling stories in, in the form of documentaries? Well, I was always into docs, even as a kid, when they weren't when they weren't that famous. I just I wanted to know more about a lot of things, and and I was um, I think there was a little bit of ADD there. I didn't. I mean, I I've read, but I would much rather watch a, a movie about about a an artist or a musician or an athlete. Um, and then as they became more pervasive, it became like you know I remember when Real Sports um, first was on the air. I was in college. And thinking like that's the ultimate dream job is you can do your own little 15, 20 minute documentary. And I knew someone at that point who worked at HBO and they said, yeah, they give these guys like three or four months to, to make these stories. And I just thought that was the ultimate dream job. So if someone would pay you to actually go out there and tell these stories and interview people. Um, and obviously the business has progressed a lot since then. Um, so I, I was lucky enough to be born at the right time, but there was always the instinct to do that. And, and, um, you know, not just docs, but narrative films and scripted films. I was always interested in doing that. So it was either going to be sports. I wanted to be either a sportscaster as a kid or a movie director. So my plan was to go work at, H, uh, at NBC Sports for a few years and then go down to like a small market and try to be a sportscaster and eventually make it back to Boston and be there like 11 o'clock sports guy if I couldn't make it as a director. Um, and then I ended up being at NBC for three years and I met Bob Costas, who was then starting a show at HBO. And he invited me to be a part of that staff at HBO and I was at HBO for seven years. And then I uh, decided to leave there and start my own company that was about 12 years ago. So I've been on my own for about 12 years. Jason, what, um, and, and you touched on that, that Bob Costas show. It was, it was a great show. And Real Sports for me was a, a big influence. I'm, I'm curious, throughout your time um, at HBO and now starting your own, your own thing, has there ever been that come-to moment of like, man, this is pretty cool what I'm working on? Like even, you know, the Jordan documentary, Andre the Giant for us, you know, wrestling fans is a huge influence. You know, like, was there ever that come, coming-to moment where you were like, this is pretty cool what I'm doing? I think it was way before that. When I was a PA uh, at NBC Sports is when we had, um, we, I say, at NBC at that point when I was working with them, they had Wimbledon, they had the Triple Crown, they had the World Series, they had just lost football, but they had pretty much every other main sport. And then, of course, the NBA and NBC, that was the staple back then. So, you know, I was fresh out of college and walking onto center court with nobody on center court at Wimbledon and, and walking there. And, and this is like hallowed ground. You can't believe that it actually exists in real life. And then um, getting really to travel the world my first couple of years out of college because they were doing, you know, I went to Sydney for the Olympics in 2000. We had the indoor track and field championships in Japan. I mean, seeing things I'd never seen, going places I'd never been. And then with the NBA, my two bosses at that point were in their late 20s, early 30s. And Vinny Costello and Doug Safchik, those are the guys that I, I learned everything, all the bones of what I know now, I learned from those guys because they were feature producers and I learned at their feet. And my deal was just to sit in the back of the edit room and not make a sound and learn through osmosis and speak when spoken to and just try and have things ready for them before they even had to ask for them. If it was a shot, if it was dinner, if it was, you know, going down to pick up the, the mail in the mail room, whatever it was. Right. just to be someone that they wanted around so that I could learn as much as possible. So they first started to have kids at that point and they couldn't go on the road or they didn't want to go on the road to do interviews. So 
I lied and said that I knew how to do that. Uh, <laughs> I interned in Boston. I interned at a local TV station. I said, yeah, I can do that. So I'd be on the road, you know, interviewing, I interviewed Tracy McGrady and, and um, Vince Carter. And there were these people that like were big stars at that point in the NBA. But to them, it was old hat because they had been there for years. To me, I was brand new and I couldn't believe that I was actually getting to do these things and go to these places. So I had a deal. It was the same camera crew all the time. They're based in Austin. Um, some of my favorite guys to this day, Terry Stewart and his crew, they called the Texas crew. And the deal was that I told them, I'll, I'll take you anywhere you want to eat tonight, but I get to ask as many questions as I want during the day. And that was always the deal. They would pick the, the nicest steakhouse and I would go and put my card down and expense it. And it took about six months in those days to get reimbursed for whatever they were willing to reimburse me for. But it was really just kind of, I still kind of um, subscribe to the notion of, you know, smile, nod, go home, look it up, just pretend, act like you know, and, and then go home and actually figure out what you're doing and come back the next day prepared. What was the lesson that you, that you learned in, your, in this process as you were, you know, just in your growth and development as, as a filmmaker that at the time felt like small, like, okay, good to know. But years later in your practice, you reflect back on and say that that opened some doors for me in terms of growing your knowledge, your skill set, and whatnot. I think just saying yes to, to anything that, that comes along. So if it's a small job or a big job, um, you know, at that point I was in my early twenties and, and I had kind of decided, you know, this is going to be, this is my grad school. So, if my friends are going out every night on the weekends, we were, that was our busiest time was the weekend because we were working in live TV. Uh, and that was every week. So I had Mondays off, but that was the only day off I had during the week for those first two or three years out of college. And saying yes to every single, or even, you know, faking my way into making something and saying like, yeah, I can go on the road. I know how to do that. I know how to do this. Um, and just trusting yourself to learn on the fly. I think, you know, looking back, if I had, if I had let things come to me, um, the lesson is that they don't come to you. You have to step up. It's what I used to tell people at HBO too, is that it's so easy to separate yourself because so many people, most people are mediocre or else special people wouldn't be special. So most people just kind of do the average. They do what's necessary of them and they go home. So I used to tell the, the, the interns every summer, all right, if you do one thing, one thing today that's better than the person who asked you to do it, expected you to do it, then that turns into five things a week and that's 20 things a month and that's 60 things this summer that you will have done that are better than people thought you would. You're gonna be a rock star. And that takes an extra 12 minutes of your day. The rest of the day you can be average. And I'm, I'm not advocating being average for, for all of the day, but I'm just trying to, to convey that it doesn't take much effort to separate yourself from the pack because so many people are willing to just do the minimum amount. So if you go in there with some enthusiasm and respect of the people around you and a willingness to, to take on whatever project is thrown your way and also try and get a couple of extra ones, then little by little it's, it's incremental, but over time you look back and you see that you've, you've covered a lot of ground. Jason, you know, we've touched a bunch on, on the different sports stocks that you have done that, that have been so iconic. Um, is it ever lost on you when you're filming these documentaries that, you know, I, I can't mess this up? Is there is that ever that feeling of, I, oh, yeah. I could fail at this? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's a, it's, it's, what, it's what trumps the, uh, not to 
Right, that not way. to invoke. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's what silences that voice in your head that can be starstruck in front of a person like Magic Johnson or Michael Jordan or Barack Obama is the urgency of, we only get one shot at this, I have to do this right. And the urgency, the, the fear of failure supersedes the, the thrill of actually meeting these people and being in front of them. Not that it's not a thrill, but yeah, I can't, there, there's not an interview that I do where I don't have you know, fleeting moments and sometimes you know, long lingering moments of, all right, don't screw this up, this has to go well. With Jordan, we interviewed him three times for The Last Dance and the first time we interviewed him, I had no idea if he was gonna leave a half hour. I had you know, six or seven pages of questions and that's, that's normally an hour or a page. I didn't know how long he was planning on going. I knew what I needed to get, but I had no idea if I should just jump to the end of this thing and get the most important stuff. So yeah, there's, there's, there always will be, if there's not that, that danger and you're not out of your comfort zone, then why do it? You know? Right. It's as Mike said, the, of, of all of your pieces, the one that stands out to me most recently is, is the Andre documentary. And I'll ask about that in a little bit, but since you mentioned Jordan, um, something that stood out to me about the last dance was, was the openness that Michael brings, which I think right now we see often with athletes through social media and different channels. Like there's, there's a vulnerable, I use the word loosely in this case about vulnerability because people are just sure sharing what her most acceptable or most comfortable sharing. And as I watch it, something I, I thought about, I get to ask you here, um, you know, with Jordan being so forthcoming, the two things come to me is one, what was something that he was more forthcoming about that you didn't expect? And on the flip side, what was something that he seemed more reticent to share than you thought he might, he, that kind of surprised you that he, he would be so resistant? Um, I'll answer the, the, the latter part of that question first. He, he's, I have no doubt that Michael Jordan has a, a very healthy ego and, and that, you know, you, you have to be egomaniacal to, to achieve the heights that, 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 he's, uh, that he's achieved. Um, but he was very reluctant to discuss his own place in basketball history, his own quote unquote greatness, his own abilities. Um, and that there was kind of an epiphany that we had about a year into the project was like, we should be telling this as a, as an underdog story. You know, he, he really had, Michael had no business thinking that he was going to be the best college player in the nation, let alone even just a member of the UNC team. He wasn't listed in the top 600 uh, recruits at the end of his junior year of high school in the, in the nation at that point. And then he goes on two months later to be the back-to-back -back MVP of the McDonald's camp when no one had ever heard of this kid, Mike Jordan from Wilmington, North Carolina. Scottie Pippen had no business thinking that he would be one of the top 50 players of all time when he wasn't even on his, his college team as a freshman. Steve Kerr had no business thinking that he would be the lifetime leader in NBA three-point percentage and, and, a, and a multiple uh, NBA title-winning player and coach barely got recruited out of high school. So all of these guys, the, the circumstances under which they, they came up were extraordinary. So that was kind of an epiphany that we had early on. And, you know, I think all of them still kind of have that in them is this bit of imposter syndrome that like, you know, maybe I don't belong here. Like even a guy like Michael, he's a confident dude, of course, and he's, he's achieved so much, but I think that there's still part of him that wants to prove to you. I remember I asked him, it didn't make the piece, but, but in the second um, interview, we sat down and the playoffs were going on. It was May of 2019. And I said, are you watching the games? And he said, yeah, of course. I said, what do you miss the most? And immediately he said, proving people wrong. 
there might not be a person on the planet who who is in danger of of, of you know people doubting him less than Michael Jordan, but he thrives on proving people wrong. So um, that was interesting that he was reluctant to talk about it in those terms. And then um, as far as him being forthcoming, you know, we went in there thinking, you, you made a list of the sensitive topics that I was hoping we would get to address. And I would have done the project no matter what, just for the opportunity to sit with these people and try and tell their story. But if you made a list of the gambling, his dad's murder, the conspiracy theories as to whether or not he was responsible for the dad's murder, the conspiracy mm. theories as to whether he got suspended, um, punching Steve Kerr and the way that he used to be really hard on teammates, uh, Republicans buy sneakers too. If you made a, a checklist of all of those if, and you told me you'll get two of those, I would have been very happy with that. Um, still frustrated as, as a you know, pseudo journalist in that side of the, the job, but I'll take it. Yeah, every single one. And, and oftentimes he wanted to discuss it more. He wanted to come back to these things and he would remind me like, all right, I want to go back to what I said before because this is what I meant. So his, and I think part of the, the impetus for him was that he dreads doing these things. He's been asked all these questions a million times. So I remember at the end of the first interview, he said, if you do your job right, I'll never have to do this again. I think he doesn't enjoy sitting there and, and, and answering these questions. So we tried to make it as natural and nonchalant as possible for him. So it was important to me that he feel comfortable and it was important that the viewer know, okay, he's kind of slouched in a chair, he's got a drink next to him, he's got a cigar. We're seeing, this is like if Michael were in your living room, you know, less than if he was in a locker room surrounded by reporters. You know, you touched on how forthcoming he was and open, right? The flip side of that is what we've seen recently with Scottie Pippen's comments about the documentary. Horace Grant has done a bunch of interviews. Chris Weber on the on the Fab Five documentary. How do you handle criticism and praise, knowing in the context that, hey, I have to make ten episodes in a certain time frame, and there's hundreds of hours of footage. Something's going to get left on the cutting room floor. Yeah, I mean, those. I, I stand by all of those projects. I think, I think the way that you can handle it is just to know that you did your best, and and a lot of thought goes into how we tell these stories, um, and we make decisions on how we're going to tell them, and just to have it be factual. Go back and show me show me what's not factual about any of those things that those guys complained about. You know, Horace's only beef was that Michael avowed in 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 the doc, you know, as it, as if it were a fact that Horace was the was the uh, source for the Jordan Rule, Sam Smith's book. But we also answered that. And, and, and we addressed that with, with Horace, we addressed it with Smith, we addressed it. BJ Armstrong says there had to be way more than just one person. It was coaches, it could be part of the front office, it was other players. So we addressed that. Horace is pissed off at Michael. So thus he says that the doc is BS. And I like Horace, we had a great time with him. We had a great experience with him. I have absolutely no ill will. I have no ill will towards any of these guys because it's never personal because it's, it's, it's strictly a business relationship. I'll probably never see these guys again. Right. But as long as I can go to bed knowing that, you know, I did two years of research for this. We have a team that gave close to three years of their lives for this. And all of us care deeply about the integrity of the project and the quality of the project. So. If there's any frustration, it's in defense of them, just kind of as, as a big brother who's defending all of those people who gave their, their lives and, and went away from their families on holidays and through the pandemic and all that to, to make this as good as it could be. But as long as you know that you've done your work and you have, 
you know, you, you've, you've told, an, you've given an accurate depiction of the events that occurred. It doesn't frustrate me at all. It's just, it's unfortunate, but it's part of the job. You mentioned working through the pandemic. You know, one of the things that had come out about the release of The Last Dance was the, um, the push-up schedule. Um, what was, just from a technical standpoint, you're seeing a, a, you know, a moved up timetable for you and your team. What's that experience about moving everything up and changing your, not necessarily changing editing practices, but expediting and having to shuffle around um, just so much to, to meet the need of, meet the need of, the, of, the, at the, of ESPN at that point? We were more prepared for it than I thought we were because all of us had, had such a, a, at that point, we were coming to the finish line no matter what. So everyone had a really, really rock solid vision of exactly how these final episodes were going to go and the story we were going to tell. We, we had completed shooting. We did our last interview the night before the Rudy Gobert game. So March 10th, we interviewed John Stockton. Wednesday, March 11th is the Gobert game when they shut down the NBA and right. Tom Hanks test positive. And that's really kind of when the world changed that night. And then by Monday the 16th, we were discussing with Netflix and ESPN when we were going to show the first couple of episodes. So really, I became the least important person on the team at that point because everyone, we had editors and technical people, Matt Maxson, who used to work with us at HBO, Mike. Yeah. These were people whose expertise I then had to take a back seat and say, all right, I can barely log on to you know, open my laptop. I don't know how to use a Google Doc. I and mean, there's, there's certain things that like, I, they're, they're light years ahead of me. And they had to create a workflow where we could communicate uh, from apartment to apartment on, you know, basic uh, rudimentary, just kind of consumer level electronics when we're coming from a multi-million dollar edit facility. So it's a credit to our team, A, to their persistence and their stick to to actually get this job done under really, really harrowing circumstances. Um, and it's in a credit to, to the expertise, the technical expertise of the people like Maxson and uh, Chad Beck and Devin Kincannon and Ab Isofsky and all these people who were on our team who knew how to do this. And then our, our post facility, uh, Sim Post in Tribeca, that's where Ezra Edelman did OJ Made in America. I mean, th these people knew how to do something of this scope and this ambition. Um, I don't think anyone who knew how to do something from their apartments on this kind of schedule, but we had people who were battle tested um, and really, really stepped up from, from top to bottom. Jason, you know, one of the things I think about, uh, and, and just the, the three documentaries in particular, Last Dance, Andre the Giant, and, and the Fab Five, um, there's a key figure in each of them that either passed away or didn't participate in the doc. So how hard is it to tell somebody's story that, really wasn't in the doc or at least recent footage or a recent interview of them. The one where it mattered the least, I think was Andre the giant. And that was the title of that documentary, of course, but his story was his story. And I would have loved to interview him, you know, in the flesh, in person and try and get to, you know, I always said it was a story about Andre Rusimov, not about Andre the giant. It's about the human behind the, the character. Um, Weber was very difficult because he was alive and well and we knew it and we kept on being, you know, he was dangling his availability in front of us and we were getting closer and closer to a deadline and we didn't know if he was going to do it or not. And ultimately he said no and we had to just rush to the finish line without him in, in, included in the doc. Um, and obviously he was a key, key figure in it. But the irony of that was that 
the original plan for the Fab Five was, was the production plan was the five of them sitting around a table like at a, at a steakhouse and reminiscing with each other about all of those times and telling the story from their point of view. So, so the vision for that was not to have anybody speaking except for them and maybe interview Coach Fisher, but that was it. It would have been much, much weaker and, and a lot less well-rounded of a duck. So when Chris didn't do it, that, that, and that would have eaten up a ton of budget. So it opened up this huge window in the budget where we could say, all right, let's go interview all of the teammates. Let's interview some of the writers who covered them. Let's interview the current president and AD at Michigan. Um, so that was a learning moment for me is that like some of these things, you're sure you're going to tell it one way and then the world kind of caves in on itself and you have to start over from scratch. And oftentimes it ends up being better than you even planned for it to be with the bulls. I assume you're talking about Jerry Krause. Right. And that was really hard. I mean, I, I, I consider Jerry Krause in many ways, a sympathetic figure. He certainly is a visionary. He put every single piece in place except for Michael for all six of those championships. And he chose to build a dynasty around a two guard, which had never been done before in the NBA. You build around a, a big man and a point guard. And he had the vision to recognize uh, how transcendent Michael's talent was. Um, you know, we caught some criticism for saying we were too hard on him and uh, we showed the guys bullying him too much. My goal was to show you what he endured uh, it was not to bully him. It, it was to expose the bullying that he had to persevere through and still do his job. Now, he never was going to be one of the guys. And the harder he tried to be one of the guys, the more they were going to push him out. And I think that he had always been a guy who was kind of stepped on as a kid and, and, and up through his adult life. So he thought now, okay, finally, I'm the boss of the coolest kids in the world. They have to accept me as one of their own. And they didn't. So they butted heads and then Phil and he butted egos. Um, but I would have been really, really interested to, to talk to him about what, if anything, he regrets and what he stands by to this day. So yeah, this one, like I said, we had 105 people to interview in this, so we didn't have a lack of characters, but it was a glaring, uh, it was a glaring void in, in the storytelling. I wish we could have gotten Jerry, but couldn't. In the, in the story of Andre Rusmov, and I appreciate you, bring stress and humanity. I think that's important to speak about in, in, in his memory. Um, someone, it might've been Vince McMahon, I forgot, but someone made the line, said the line about Andre that he was one of those people that rare in the sense that so fantastical that anything you heard about this individual, there's a good chance you'd believe it. Um, for everyone, for all the different projects you've been a part of, the other people you've encountered professionally, even personally, if Andre's number one in the most fantastical person that people sort of attribute all kinds of wild stories, true or otherwise, to, who's number two for you? Jordan's the easy answer because even when you're sitting in front of him, he still kind of feels like a two-dimensional character. He's, he's like a poster come to life. It just, it doesn't, your brain does not compute um, as much as, as my job necessitates making human beings out of these people. Your brain does not compute when you see this person in a commercial sense your entire life. And I, I mean, beyond TV commercials, just in a, on a t-shirt or on a, on a shoe or on a poster. Um, but also that he has had this kind of Forrest Gumpian life that he's, you know, he'll show up, he, he's, he's at the side of the green at the Ryder Cup, and then he's sitting front row at the NCAA finals, and then you see him in a movie premiere. So 
he's had a breadth and a depth of, of experiences that he's lived that anything someone told me about, about him, I, I would believe. Uh, Tyson is another one that there's no story you could tell me about Mike Tyson that I wouldn't say, well, it's, it's possible that that, that that occurred. So um, uh, Mayweather is another one. It's, it's people that, you know, it shouldn't surprise you that it's people who are the most iconic in their sport, who are the most revered. Um, we ironically get the least amount of access into their private lives. So we conjure these images of like, well, I heard Tyson had, you know, three Siberian tigers in his backyard. Or I think one of those is true that they at least had one, but there's stories that we can conjure and rumors that can propagate that are assumed as true because we don't have access to these people because they, they live in, in this kind of mythical, ethos that weren't, we don't have access to as, as civilians down here. These are demigods, you know? So there's very few people who, who aren't, um, you know, some of the bears, some of the 85 bears, Steve, uh, uh, um, Steve McMichael, Michael, yeah. um, some of those guys just have larger than life personalities, but you get a sense that they, you know, get up in the morning and they drive down the street and get coffee and do what the rest of us do. So some of these other people, it, it's just a different level of stardom that they've achieved and it makes you believe anything you hear about them. You, you talked about um, earlier how people spend so much time away from their families and you devote so much to this project, you know, months, years. Um, so these are, in essence, your babies. Wh which one's your favorite? Oh, um, I don't know. I, you know, it's impossible to say. And I'm not, it's, it's not a cop out. I have, I have movies that I, that I've I'm proud of and, and movies that I think I could have done better. I'm really proud of the original 24 sevens we did at HBO because that just seems like lifetimes ago, but that was really a sense of like, you talk about go home and like smile, go home and look it up. It was literally a blank piece of paper that we were scribbling ideas down on for that because no one knew what that show was going to be. So that was really special because we kind of built that from, from nothing. Um, and it was with some really good friends of mine who are still good friends to this day. Um, but I think it'll, it'll be tough. You know, it, it's, it's certainly not all downhill from here, but the last dance because of the circumstances under which we finished it and under which it aired and this being, I hope the worst year <laughs> of our lifetimes, uh, culturally and socially and globally. Um, it's, it's always going to, when I think of this time in my life, you know, there's some other movies I have to think like our Fab Five that came out then. So that was 2011, but we shot some of it. This will always be 2020. Like the, the, the last dance will, will, will be synonymous with 2020 in my brain. But I don't know. I think you have to hopefully wait 40 or 45 years. If I'm still kicking around asking that question, I might have a, a clearer answer for you. What's a story that you're surprised by is not sort of is not being expanded enough or told enough? that if you get a chance to get your hands on that you're excited about, not that I want you to give away what your upcoming project is, but. <laughs> um, the 86 Mets they're doing. Um, and that was like my team growing up because we got channel nine in Boston. So I fell mm -hmm. in love with, with Gooden and strawberry and that entire team. Uh, I had to watch the 86 series in a different room in my house because I was rooting for, for both. Mm -hmm. I understood how the game worked, but I was nine years old and it was, I was not, um, my dad said, if you're going to root for Gooden and Strawberry and the Red Sox, then you have to go to another room. Uh, I think the Cowboys um, dynasty in the 90s, you know, it's it's analogous to the last dance. It doesn't have quite that uh, 
Jordanian figure at the center of it, but I do think they captured the imagination of the American sports audience. Uh, I don't think it would have quite the global impact because football globally doesn't have the reach that basketball does. But just in terms of the personalities that came through that team, you of course have Aikman and Emmett and um, Michael Irvin, but Deion Sanders was there and you know Nate Newton is a large life guy, no pun intended. And you had the Jerry Jones and Jimmy Johnson and Barry Switzer kind of triangle. There's a lot of stuff to mine there. And I'm sure that there is a lot of versions of the truth that a lot of people have, um, you know, 20 or 30 years afterwards. So luckily I work in a field where uh, there's never, you're never gonna get to the end and say, all right, that's all the stories there are to be told because even as we speak, there are stories that are unfolding that, that someone's gonna make a doc out of someday. Jason, before we let you go, um, you touched on it earlier about when you speak with interns and the advice you give them. I'm sure you get asked this a bunch, but what what is a piece of advice that you would give to the next generation of of filmmakers, directors, producers that either want to get into the business or or they don't know what they want to do? You talked about how you wanted to be a journalist. Um, I I started out as a journalist before moving into, you know, television. So what is a piece of advice you would give to that next generation? Go out and do it. Um, don't sit there researching it. Don't, don't talk about it. The equipment and technology that is at everyone's disposal now, like I told you before, when we first started talking that I used to have to basically drag my television out into the backyard to film anything uh, over my shoulder. Um, and that's only a slight exaggeration because this thing was like the size of my torso to, to put it over my, my neck. Now we have cameras, you know, there's, there's 4K cameras on, on cell phones. And our cameras that we won the cinematography Emmy for with 24-7 were 720. So these things are almost five times or over five times the the power uh, in our pocket that we had just 12 years ago, 13 years ago. So everyone out there who has an idea has the ability to go out tomorrow and shoot that and to, to go on YouTube and learn. I mean, I learned how to edit from ordering the, there was a guy at HBO who was taking classes and I, I used, he paid for a student, uh, you get a student discount for like the Avid software. So it goes from like 2000 down to like 300 or 400 bucks. So I gave him 400 bucks, he bought it for me. And they came with a CD-ROM back then, it was probably 15 years ago. And I learned from that. I mean, and, and now I'm sure it's exponentially easier just to hop on onto YouTube or some tutorial to show you how to do these things. So. It's there and it's Darwinian. Like the people who want it enough with all of the equipment that's out there and tools that are out there and resources, they will get it. They will figure out a way to do it. So no one's gonna knock on your door and say, hey, um, we're inviting you to come do this. If you're a teenager before you're, you're even in college or even when you're in college, you gotta go out and do it. And if it's good enough, it will find an audience. And if it finds an audience of 100 people, Maybe one of those people is someone who can make a difference and get it to 10,000 people. Or if it finds an audience of 1,000 people, then it gets retweeted by somebody who gets it to 100,000 people. So I would say just basically get off your ass. Get out there and do it and have fun doing it. And only I always say that, that the, the audience should be you. I make these things for me and my friends and my family and my brothers. If they like it, I trust their sensibility. And I hope that everyone likes it. If, if, but, but if it's my core of, of, of friends and family who like it, I'm doing it for them. Um, but it has to be something that you are proud of. 
And if you're proud of it and you're talented and you have a good eye, other people will notice too. Jason, thanks so much for, for joining us tonight. Um, as I mentioned before, ESPN, Netflix, you can stream The Last Dance. HBO Max, you can stream Andre the Giant. Uh, and of course, ESPN Plus, you can stream some of the 30 for 30 documentaries that we mentioned that Jason's directed and produced. We really appreciate you jumping on with us tonight, Jason. Appreciate it. Be here, guys. Stay safe. So that was Jason Ayer who joined us. Uh, go check out his documentaries like we mentioned on all the different streaming platforms out there. The Last Dance, Andre the Giant, the Fab Five, the 85 Bears. I even forgot about some of the 24-7 series that he worked on back in the day at HBO. He also did an interview with Barack Obama. Uh, Nick, Nick, what's your, what was your big takeaway from, from Jason? I, I actually, well, for one, I was, it, I was really blown away by just how, how open he was about strategies that worked well for him. And it's funny because it's thing we take for granted. I made a joke during our interview about like, you know, fake it till you make it, right? But that kind of summarized, you know, something that he believed in. I mean, I think, you know, fundamentally for him, it's like, go out and do it. And that's actually the last thing he shares with us, like in terms of advice. I was actually really floored by the nuggets that came up for him throughout in terms of what are some little truths that I think maybe sometimes kick around in our head that, you know, here's a, an accomplished filmmaker who's saying, yes, that's actually gospel. Like these are the things that you want to have, that you want to be mindful of. I mean, talking about you know, he tells a great story about interns and taking that one thing a day to do better than the person, like to go above and beyond expectations, really. Um, and things that seem so common sense, but were sort of laid out in a way that tells us this trajectory of a person who goes from, um, you know, making just movies with his brothers and hauling big equipment and whatnot to being nationally, if not globally recognized as a premier storyteller and documentary telling. You know, it's funny because, and, and him and I have known each other for a while, and, and we worked in that HBO circles, where, you know, we talked about this with him off air, but just so much talent that came out of the HBO sports division. Um, Ezra Edelman did OJ Made in America. Gabe, Gabe Spitzer is now over at, at Netflix, and he did the 30 for 30 on John Daly. You know, all the great producers are real sports. It's just so much talent that, and he mentioned it, you, you really got to get off your ass and do it. And he has been able to associate himself with some premier films. I mean, he, he talked about it. 2020 is probably going to be remembered for The Last Dance, uh, at least in terms of television premieres. It was so anticipated. It got so much scrutiny, criticism and praise. You know, everyone said uh, it was a Michael Jordan doc, the ones that criticized it, the ones that praised it. This was the best thing that has been on television in years. And, and here's a guy that, you know, gets to sit there, do these interviews, but he puts in the work to do that stuff. And it's, it's a great message for the people out there that want to do something and, and don't know if they're ever going to have this ability to do it. There's no time like the present, you know, and Jason talked about, you know, his, his upbringing and, and how he really got into it uh, in terms of filmmaking. But I, I was just so floored by some of the advice that he's given to interns, you know, having been at that HBO and, and hiring interns um, and seeing, you know, how message is relayed from the top down, right? It's great to see, but now to hear somebody who's actually made it from that and, and has put himself, you know, you know, in this pantheon of, of filmmakers, especially in the sports documentary world, is pretty cool to see. The second thing I, I was um, pretty interested to hear him say was, because I was always curious, you know, you don't have some key people in some of these documentaries 
speaking, you know, like Jerry Krause passed away years ago, you know, Andre's not, a, hasn't been alive for a while, you know, um, Chris Weber, and I knew about Chris Weber not wanting to participate up until the last minute, but you don't think about the Fab Five without Chris Weber, you know, so how do you tell these stories when some people are not around or some people just don't want to do it? And it's very tough because Anytime you saw the comments by Chris Weber, you know, he, he thought that this, this documentary was too much on Jalen Rose. You're going to get that type of criticism. I thought he handled it really well. And he's, he's, so, he's so well-rounded. You, you could just hear it in his voice. And he, he's really got that passion for, for filmmaking, but he, he knows what he wants to do and he's going to do it. We're going to be shifting gears our next episode because we're going to talk about, we covered the media in our first episode and we had Naveed Jamali on and talked about his experiences in media. But now we're going to get that female journalist perspective, right? So, What's it like covering the current administration? What's it like, you know, working as a female journalist in today's world? And Sabrina Rodriguez of Politico is going to join us for our next episode. So we're super excited to have her. You can download our episodes uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a subscribe or follow. Leave us a comment in the, in the app stores. Uh, we appreciate everybody listening. As always, I'm Mike Leon. I am Nick Saveri. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.